Hello, I'm Simon Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. And oh, I feel drumroll needed. Oh, a special guest. The, the first lady of energy, as she's known in the circles here. <laughs> <laughs> I have the wonderful Juliet Davenport with me today. Hello, Juliet. Hello, and good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. For people who don't know you, yeah. I am taking slightly the piss, but. You are kind of the first lady of energy because you set up good energy. You've been working in the field for many years and you were doing things way before it was all trendy. And we're going to cover some of that. But in a nutshell, could you tell everyone what got you into the energy sector in the first place? Yeah, because it wasn't, I have to say, it wasn't a straightforward route. I think I try to, when people ask me this question, particularly students, I basically... I do tell them, but I also say not necessarily a route that most people would like to take. So I guess my first foray really was I got interested in climate change and I got interested in climate change at university doing physics, not necessarily a, a normal route. But that's I was going to say, <laughs> environmental science, biology, I get. But when you're looking at neutrons, how do you go from that to climate change? Well, in fact, we use covered thermodynamics and atmospheric. Um, that was the bit that got me hooked and obviously I sat there kind of going oh this looks really interesting and then went sat there for a much longer time trying to think and what do I do now and so I actually did a lot of other jobs that were nothing to do with energy for a while from PR to working in a hotel things like that hang on hang on hang on what did you do in a hotel uh, were you the receptionist no I was something called a general assistant which basically meant you did all the jobs that nobody else wanted to do and you had to stay up really late to close the bar and get up really early and do the breakfast where was the hotel it was in the most beautiful place ever so if you ever want to be inspired by nature it was the British Virgin Islands oh hang on all right all empathy's gone for you in a second <laughs> So that was pretty cool. But I learned that I wasn't necessarily going to be great in the hospitality sector. Fair enough. That was a good learning, I feel. Actually, I tell you, I met some really interesting people there. I met an amazing physicist who went to stay there, quite well famous. Can't remember who it was now, but he was pretty cool. Yeah. But I then came back and I ended up working in sports PR. Again, nothing to do with the energy sector. This is brilliant. I've never known this and I've known you for like 10 years. This is great stuff. But it taught me a huge amount about PR, communications. Yeah. And actually, having been a scientist, you don't get many communication skills as a scientist. No, that's very true. Quite good. You learn how to write and to read and to speak, which I thought were pretty handy. And then actually, probably the first time I really got involved in the energy sector was when I got an internship in the European Commission working on, I was originally offered nuclear non-proliferation. Might have been interesting, but I also got offered energy policy and so that's where I started and it gave me this amazing overview of the energy sector from a European context so looking at security supply looking at oil and gas pipeline investment looking at renewable investment looking at networks everything everything was going on at that time when is this is this early yeah it's early 90s 92 93 I think it was so liberalization of electricity and gas market third party access all that kind of stuff read a lot in French bizarrely about security supply and then also there was obviously the investment in gas and oil pipelines going into Russia because people were terrified. Yeah, because just opened up, yeah. So, I mean, it was a really interesting time. And I then, having done the internship in the commission, I then did a stint in the European Parliament working on carbon taxation. So I got this very high level view 
of the energy sector, what was making it work, what wasn't making it work. And renewables were really nowhere at this point. I mean, they were big in countries like Austria from a biomass point of view, but nothing, nothing else. That was kind of the beginning of my journey, really, going, actually, renewables offer this amazing thing that they're both low carbon, they're environmental, but also having had such a strong security supply background, they provide security supply as well. And um, that was kind of the start of the journey. Let's go back and just be honest, because, you know, I think we were of the same generation. And I remember... I joined the BBC in 93, about that sort of time. And, you know, energy wasn't even, no one cared, right? No one, it wasn't a big issue. It was there. You turned on the boiler or, you know, around the tap and off you went and it was very cheap. And obviously we thought about oil and gas. I mean, I was never an eco-warrior. Were, were you always slightly towards that ilk or, or you know, because I didn't I didn't really think about oil and gas. or the, I mean, hey, I wanted more trees and I thought that was quite nice, but... I wouldn't say I was like, oh, my God, oil and gas is really awful. What was your thinking at that time? No, so, I mean, I have to admit that I was, I really wasn't. I was the opposite. I mean, I grew up, my dad was a rallying co-driver. So I spent part of my life on a racetrack watching cars go very fast and promoting the internal combustion engine. So, I, I, I mean, that was that was quite an interesting growing up as well, because I learned a lot about technology development, learned a lot about competition, and also saw the inside of the motor industry, very much so. I mean, it, it was one particular part of it, but it was very much the driving force. And I mean, one of my first pitches, actually, when I came out of university, I went to, do, have you ever come across a company called ProDrive? I've heard of them. Yeah. I've seen the name. Yeah, so specialist engineering company, particularly involved in motorsport. Um, they used to do the Subarus, rallying Subarus. I don't know what they oh, Okay, right. And I went to see a guy called Dave Richards, who was the head of it, and tried to explain to them that I thought as an advanced engineering company, they should be starting to think about new technologies, maybe wind turbines or kind of using their engineering prowess. Yeah, not interested. Probably not surprising. I probably didn't pitch it very well. I was kind of quite <laughs> But you were, like I said, you know, tree hunger is a phrase, but, you know, there was things like Swampy. Do you remember Swampy? Yeah. And, you know, all the stuff that was going on about. And I was very ambivalent to all that. Were you, because having had that, like, you just... No, it wasn't me at all. No, I wasn't that at all. No. I really wasn't a Swampy. I mean, I came at it from initially an intellectual and then a kind of commercial angle, because I believe that yes. if you didn't do something about it, our planet would be inhabitable from a human point of view. So it slowly dawned on you about this, and this is quite interesting, that it wasn't, you know, like some people like Greenpeace, like my sister's people, age of 12, whatever. You took it from very scientific and then learning the political and it started to shift your thinking over time. Is that, is that what you're saying? Oh, completely, yeah. And I sort of, from my point of view, I embrace what those organisations have tried to do because they give the political space to have the conversation about the environment. But that's not my role. My role is to go out there and try and figure out how you embed this in our commercial marketplaces and our businesses. And that's what I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed looking at technologies, figuring out how you bring them to market and working with that kind of innovation stage through to early market stage and I think that came from the early days sitting on the side of a racetrack yeah yeah so let's go to good energy now people know good energy it's a famous brand now but it wasn't so you're speaking at the big zero show uh on the 20th of june and you're going to be talking about kind of why you know building a green business is good let's just go back where did the idea for good energy come from and what was your moment you know I've read the shoe dog book about Nike, which is brilliant. There's loads of people. For you as the entrepreneur, what was the moment when got an idea, 
flipping it, I'm going to go and start the business. Yeah. And the other part of the question is, what did you risk? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it wasn't as if people weren't thinking about sort of supplying green energy and trying to do it. Nobody was really focused on the retail market. So the residential market was completely, well, obviously it was completely new because there hadn't been liberalisation. So I kind of knew about the liberalisation work that I'd done at the European Commission. And then I'd kind of gone across Europe. I'd actually done a big piece of consultancy work looking at 30 European countries and the potential for renewables and what needed to happen to accelerate that and when I was presenting that I was at a conference in Greece a renewables conference in Greece I was presenting that and essentially the, the kind of two things came together was that governments can move very slowly on this and the, the biggest problems in the early stages of renewables were very like this was that you switch it on and switch it off because either governments change or something politically changes so you've constantly got this kind of flip-flop approach to policy whereas my experience was and, and having chatted to lots of different people across Europe is that those countries where you got that groundswell of people interested in switching to renewables so some places like Germany and Austria where you got communities involved in it actually it didn't matter as much what the politicians were doing because the individuals were making a choice yeah. and it was that trigger plus chatting to an investor a German investor in Greece at this conference and that's where we kind of came up with the idea to he wanted to do it in Germany in the UK and the UK would lead because we were the first to liberalize and work up this concept to be residential electricity supplier. So what was the elevator pitch? A company that will build wind turbines or use wind turbine energy and, and yep. provide green tariff. Was, this, was it as simple as that? Well it was the elevator pitch was we're gonna because at that point we're part of a European country we became on the UK later. Yeah. The elevator pitch was we're going to develop renewables across the whole of Europe and we're going to sell that directly to consumers because actually that's a better way than trying to wait for government to deliver. Risky and also unheard of at the time. Yeah, I think especially pan-European wise, yes. So was it this investor that helped you? Because it's always that, as I said, what did you risk to do this? Yes, well, I mean, it's interesting because originally, I mean, I may not have done it if I'd known what the ride was going to be like in the next. <laughs> yeah, the investor absolutely set us up and got us going and then probably went bust. So <laughs> having been there for the early stages, it was like, oh my God. that got us moving, but not got us to a place where we were self-sustaining. Left us with a half-built company, which was, okay, we were operating, but we didn't have enough customers to make sure that we could to carry on paying the bills. And yeah, so we, so we had a different headache at that point. We got going, but we didn't have enough money to keep going. What did you go? Did you go to the banks or try and raise it with friends or how did you do? So we raised some from some early stage friends and family and, and also sort of board members. So I had brought some board members on board at that point, sort of Martin Edwards and the Edwards family, um, a guy called John Sellers who'd come out of Southern Electric. And they were kind of around us as this kind of yeah. core piece. But we then, they put some money in and then we went, we went around the city and went, <laughs> went to talk. I remember talking to Three Eye. Oh my God, the guy looked like he was about 10. <laughs> and obviously he was just massively sceptical that anybody would buy green electricity. So yeah, I just remember that meeting. I was like, this is just not happening, is it? So right, what's this? Late 90s, isn't it? Yeah, no, early 2000s. Early 2000s, right. So we launched and then, then our investor disappeared. So a couple of things I want to talk about very quickly on this point. You're going around to the city. A, it's full of blokes, number one. 
B, they love oil and gas at this time. They don't give a crap about green energy. And C, you've just gone bust, effectively. <laughs> I have to say, I'm impressed. How the hell did you get the money? Well, what one of the things have running a small company is you get to listen a lot. And one of the things, we have fantastic true. customers who... And one of the, the themes that kept coming through is that customers will ring up, love what we're doing, and then say, could they invest? And so I went to the chairman and said, well, listen, all these blokes in the city aren't interested, but the customers seem to be. So why don't we talk to them about investing? And that's what we did. And we did, effectively, we did a crowdfund. Yes, way before it was popular. Yeah. And it was possibly the most exciting thing ever because, first of all, it was a massive headache to put all the documentation together and then get everything done. But then after that, we sent it out. And I I always remember the chair, John, sitting, John and I sitting there, having written this prospectus and checked it all and gone through the lawyer, blah, blah, blah. I was sitting there going, he was saying, he got cold feet pretty much the night before it's like oh my god and um I said no we've got to go for it we've got to do it and we did so how many customers did you have and what did you ask from them like a tenner each or something I think we had about three thousand customers at that point peanuts. Wow. and we didn't ask them for a limited amount but the average investment I think was a thousand pounds and we had 600 invest. Wow. And that's what happens when you have early stage and you have early adopters is because they're very committed. And they were amazing. And it was, I tell you what, watching the spreadsheet as the numbers came in was the most exciting thing ever. It was brilliant. And then it starts to grow. Yeah. The world starts to yeah. change. When did you know you had a hit on your hands? To be honest, the next couple of years were relatively straightforward. I mean, I'm not saying they were without their challenges, but um, that was relatively easy flying. It was it was when we started to get into bumpy territory when the market started to jump up and down. Do you remember, I think it was, was it 2005, 2006? Yeah. When we had a massive market spike. So the one yes. we've seen take out a bunch of other energy companies. Correct, yeah. And our back office company went bust. So we had to take them over. So we had to, we went from a relatively small team who was using outsourced services to do all customer service and, and everything. So we went from about 10 people, 15 people at that point, to a company of 60 uh, in about four weeks. Wow. And that was, that was. That's terrifying. We're, we're, we're 10 people now. I couldn't imagine that. Flipping egg. Well, the cultural shift was massive, and I didn't realise quite how big an issue it would be. <laughs> and it was. It was extraordinary. So, yes, I definitely should have hired a transformation director to deal with that because it was hard work, I tell you. So, as Good grew, and then obviously it started to get publicity, it started to get name, we came across you in 2010, and, you know, and I remember you were being invited to things like speaking at, you know, Energy Institute events, uh, IP Week, as it used to be called, International Petroleum Week, all of that. And then you were starting to appear at places. You did something which was quite strange. Actually, I would say there were more people a bit like you uh, when we first joined the industry, where CEOs were out there trying to talk. I mean, there's probably Dale Vince and what's the name from Octopus, probably, he doesn't do that much, but he does a bit. But, you know, you were definitely a voice out there. Was that conscious decision to say, I'm the brand, I'm going to go out there and talk about why doing renewable energy is good for all of us? Because you could have got a PR company to do it and it didn't have to be you. Yeah, I think there was 
I think there were two things on that, really. I mean, one of the pieces I always said is that the reason for setting up a business was not only to provide consumers with a, a route into the market to show that to start to shift on the green side, but also to be the voice in the room amongst then other energy companies. My experience from the European Commission was that right. big energy companies have access to government in a way that a lot of people don't. And having listened to a lot of the work that was done by Greenpeace and some of those other uh, sort of friends of the earth, looking at energy policy as they were and trying to lobby on energy policy, what struck me was that a lot of the time the ideas weren't that practical and actually they could be quite easily dismissed behind closed doors by other energy companies. Whereas actually what we did was say, no, you can do this. Um, and this is how you do it. And we're going to show you how to do it. And I think particularly around a lot of the micro generation stuff, a lot around distributed energy, a lot about community energy, all of those things that everybody else said you couldn't do. We just went and did. Yeah. And, and it's now commonplace. It's, it's a mo they're models now, aren't they? For this. And that was the point of us in a way. We were there to be a disruptor in the market and actually have a voice inside regulation inside the um, policymakers that said no you can do this don't you don't have to listen to the guys who just told you you can't yes you can and this is how you do it i've always admired the way you sort of like you said you did that in, in a way knowing you a bit i don't think you're very jealous about the fact that everyone else has copied that it's a good thing isn't it that people like you know eon and ssc and all of the big ones you know they're all doing this sort of stuff british gas they're all moving towards this they've all moved towards renewables all the big oil and gas people that used to have names like dong are now you know austin you know Equinor, all of there's a change going on. Total Energies now. There's all of this shifting. There's people now offering green tariffs as standard, and you know, Octopus couldn't have existed. I, I don't think in my book it probably good hadn't existed in the first place. So do you look back and go, you know what, they all flipping copied me, or do you look back and go, I'm really glad we made a shift in the consensus thinking because that's always the thing, isn't it? If you're a disruptor, you don't really change everything in one go because you can't because you're normally yeah. small, but you can. Yeah, and I think I look back at it. I don't feel jealous at all occasionally I kind of go when people claim to be the first it's like come on guys no, you <laughs> that's a bit that's a bit frustrating it's like but and, and I, the lovely thing it's so funny when I listen to some people go and we just did this aren't we amazing it's like yeah we did that like 15 years ago so I sometimes get a bit exasperated but I don't get jealous because absolutely what we were trying to do was really lead the rest of the market and demonstrate that you could do these things and then allow everybody else to do them as well because you can't be selfish to deliver climate change. Yes. There's no way you can. You have to be generous and you have to accept that everybody gets on with it. So, I mean, I do find it still quite funny. Occasionally I get, I hate to call it mansplained, but I do get mansplained. <laughs> And it, it possibly because people haven't come across me before. And I, that occasionally I get a bit frustrated with it. It's like, oh, for heaven's sake, it's not that complicated. But yeah, but no, I mean, the point is that we are shifting and we are moving. There's a lot of work to do still in certain areas. Yeah. But the bit that good worked in, the bit that I did early on, has definitely moved forward and has made you so that's brilliant before we end a couple of quick things so obviously you're coming to speak and you've done a great book the book is entitled the green startup i don't want to give away what you're going to be talking about but in a nutshell you know people now talk about this kind of change which i'd never have thought about when we were young 
that people talk about, you know, corporate good or doing good and all of this stuff. But if you look at it, if you can use less at the end of the day, mm-hmm. produce less crap, all right, are trying to make sure that what you do, and there's always every business, your business has it, our business has it, has a negative effect on the environment, but try and, you know, reduce that as much. Do you think that is now becoming the way of thinking, not just here, but sort of globally? There's, there is, there, I hope there's been a shift that says to people, you know, being green isn't about eco, you can still make money. And that's one thing I'm really, you know, I think it's very important that people that actually can be successful and be green. Completely. I mean, I think, I think in a sense, the question is that actually, what I find fascinating, so I um, chatted to, I wrote an article a while ago on um, energy in the food sector and how energy prices are affecting the food sector. And I, and I got to talk to all my favourite food manufacturers, whether they were bakers or brewers. What was fascinating about that is that the ones who had done the work, the environmental work, to so the ones who had sort of tried to do B core or something similar were thinking about carbon had basically made themselves a lot more resilient when it came to the energy crisis because they'd already looked at where they were wasting all their energy and they'd already started to try and reduce that and they'd already started to think about can we put solar on our roofs and so what what i see is that actually if you're not thinking about this you're not actually running your business very well because as soon as you start to, I mean, what the book tries to do is take you through every aspect of the business. So whether it's you start with your energy and how you look at the office space and what you're doing in your office space, you actually look at your purpose as well. I talk about purpose because I think that is, again, yeah. quite helpful just to reinvigorate what people are doing. And we look at HR strategy, we look at finance strategy, all those pieces add together to shift And if you can push on climate change around all of those areas, then every business can make a much bigger impact than they think they're going to do and become more resilient, become more attractive to um, employees. So there's a lot of it's not just about the account that's looking at the bottom line of the product. It's also looking at the other reduced costs as an organisation or reduced risk. And my last question, a lot of people say, well, it can only be green if you're not for profit, right? You know, oh, no, we we shouldn't be making money because that's evil. We ought to protect the planet. What's your stance on that? Oh, I've always slightly struggled with this. I mean, the non-for-profit is really about the people who run the company. That's that's their that's their kind of philosophy. My view is making sure that something is commercially viable means it's much more sustainable long term. So it means that as a business, as soon as as soon as you become commercially viable, then you have the freedom to go and invest in what you want to. If you're producing cash as an organization, you can you can do four things with it. You can give it to your staff, give it to your customers, give it to your shareholders or give it to the future. And that's what's so brilliant about business is that you have this kind of constant sort of stakeholder management piece. But actually, you have the freedom to invest in new things and new ideas if you are commercially viable. Can I end on a better note? Julia, I'm so looking forward to you coming to the Big Zero Show on June the 20th and speaking. You've got some copies of your book to give away to the first few who approach you. So that would be brilliant. So don't miss out on her session. She is the Queen of Energy. Thank you so much for your time today. (laughs) Thank you. That's been brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Help! Can I control energy costs for my business? How do I electrify my transport? Is cutting emissions hard? What is carbon negative? You'll get the answers to all these questions and more at the Big Zero Show on the 20th of June at the CBS Arena in Coventry. Register for your free ticket now. Big names. Big opportunities. BigZeroShow.com 
You've been listening to the Net Hero Podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.